Okay, good afternoon everyone. Let's get going. Um, I hope um, you're not all feeling too bleary-eyed after the, the night behind us. Um, so, uh, I'm delighted that today we've got uh, Holly Watkins joining us. Holly um, is an investigative uh, reporter with The Guardian. Uh, she started her career at the Sunday Times, worked at the Telegraph on the MP's expenses scandal, uh, and in particular uh, at The Guardian uh, was one of uh, four journalists working uh, for a period full time on the Panama Papers, which is what she's going to talk to us about, I dare say, and tell things uh, this afternoon. So, Holly, very well. <coughs> you know, I hope, I hope people got some sleep last night, I have to say. <laughs> if, if you nod off, I'll, I'll, exactly. I'll, I'll nudge you. Yeah. Smack me awake. Um, but yeah, so the Panama Papers. Um, Pamela. Um, I'm just going to talk a bit about the sort of technical challenges and the tools we use and that sort of thing, just how we really approached it because it was such a sort of task. Um, so, one of our team calculated it would take one person 27 years to read every document in the Panama Papers. Um, and in Scotland, I think there's a fourth bridge, which there's a running joke that every time you get to the end of it, you'd have to start painting it again. But the Panama Papers, you know, if you can imagine reading that sort of level of information, it would take you just could, it was completely impossible. So we really had to sort of change, well, not change, but sort of evolve how we approach data journalism in a time frame. So actually, mentioning the uh, MP's expenses, that was 2009, and we got this big leak, um, you know, and at the time it was regarded as a huge leak. Um, and that was, sorry, so people who don't know, that was an investigation into the money that MPs were able to claim on their second homes and it turned out they were claiming for all sorts of things, you know, from swimming pools to cleaning moats in one case. So it was, it was tricky. But on that particular investigation, my job was to go through and read everything really, really quickly because we had sort of slight issues with sourcing and everything else like that. So my role was just getting oversight of it really fast. And that's what I did. And that was technically possible to do. And I had to do it. And it was possible. But also, like the Panama Papers, that would just never, ever have been possible. So... You know, because I don't actually know how big that leak was, but it was probably about 650 MPs, about up to about a thousand pages each. So you had to go really quickly, but you could do it. But it's changing. So in 2010, you had Cablegate, which was 1.7 gigabytes. Then there was Swiss leaks in last year, that was 3.3 gigabytes, and the Panama Papers was 2.6 terabytes. So that's absolutely enormous compared to that. So how do we approach it? The first thing, which every journalist will actually know about, is when you're approaching something, you have to convince your news editor you know what you're talking about. And actually, that was quite difficult, because I got called into a small room by a colleague, and he talked for a bit, and then eventually said, we've got every document connected to Mossack Fonseca. And I just didn't know what Mossack Fonseca was. And at the time, very, very few people did. Because Mossack Fonseca, basically, for about 40 years, has been operating out of Panama and other places around the world. And it provides offshore company services for very rich individuals. And actually, they're very, you know, they kept a very, very low profile. They're not even one of the biggest companies that do this. They're one of the top five, but you know, they're not huge. Um, so essentially, just trying to find out, you know, trying to get your head around what Mossack Fonseca did was quite complicated. So I sort of said to my boss, "Yeah, of course I know all about Mossack Fonseca." And yeah, yeah, kept nodding, kept smiling, and sort of, you know, it was like, "Oh, great! Oh, didn't know you knew." Yeah, you know, so. And then, so just eventually, four journalists, but there was actually a much bigger team at The Guardian working on that, but four of us moved sort of full-time with this room, and we stayed there for about eight months, because it didn't go wrong. Um, so, 
yeah, so that's just document, that's sort of a stone in this Guardian graphic. Um, but that just shows just how much it was, which was huge. Um, and yeah, this is happening because there is a capacity for these big leagues to happen now. I mean, it's just something that is happening, and journalists have to react to that. Um, so, yeah, so basically, I mean, that again, so sorry, how it's changing. Um, at the, during MPs' expenses, a free information request went in. The House of Commons started scanning all the documents in, and eventually that was all on one hard drive. And actually, essentially, what happened is one person could pick up a hard drive and walk out with it, and that's what happened. Whereas the Panama Papers, just that's just not technically possible. It's just it had to, it couldn't be done like that. So, going to where this all started. So, it's before I got involved, um, this was a sort of big international effort by a very big, <coughs> and it started because somebody we only know as John Doe got in touch with Frederick. Overmeyer and Bastian Overmeyer uh, in Germany, and there it was Deutsche Zeitung. And so basically, completely out of the blue, they got in touch with them, which was brilliant. So Frederick and Bastian looked at this and started getting a sense of how much it would be, and they realised very quickly that the two of them would not be able to do it alone. So they went to the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, and the ICIJ looked at that data, and they also sort of thought, got, you know, even the ICIJ working on it, and Bastian and Frederick would not be enough. So then they started to put together this team of journalists right the way around the world. And they put together a team of 400 journalists with 100 media organisations in 80 countries. So it was a massive team. And very luckily that team included uh, The Guardian and BBC's Panorama in the UK. So then we went to work. And there is an old saying in journalism, which is, you know, follow the money. And that is what we did. And I think kind of we were all just totally shocked by when you followed the money in this case, it went absolutely everywhere. And so you had this large team of journalists right there around the world spending months and months on a project, but they were working on this, also this international, so there was an international network of journalists chasing an international network of money. So it was quite, it was global in many different ways. Um, and so then we started looking into it. And I think journalists in this room will know, when you start looking at a story, you sort of start researching it, you start talking to a few people, and you sort of get your head around what it is. And then you sort of go, I think you sort of go over the hump and then you kind of go down into it and you kind of, you've understood it. And in the Panama Papers, I think all the journalists involved would recognise that we never got to that point of completely understanding it. It was just, it was such a sort of endless sea of information and sort of unbelievably complicated issues that were there. So we kind of worked and worked and worked and you still didn't really feel like you got anywhere on it. But there we go. So basically... When we started, first of all, the absolute first thing we had to do was, was understand the structure of Mossack Fonseca, which is 42 countries and 600 staff, and that in alone was just trying to work out how these different groups within Mossack Fonseca were interacting. So that was the first bit. Then, obviously, we had to make sense of how all these different tax havens operated, because you had to understand the financial systems in the British Virgin Islands and the Seychelles and the Cayman Islands, or places like Nui, which is a dot in the middle of the Pacific, you know, so it was just, and every single one of these countries have, like, a different system and a different company structures and different ways you could use these companies, and it just, it did feel endless, and we were definitely all dreaming about it at a certain point. So, probably, these are the three main systems that we used, the, that the ICIJ put together in order to allow us to sort of attack the information. 
Now the first is Blacklight, which was essentially a sort of ser search engine for the data. And it sounds, you know, a search engine sounds relatively straightforward, but in the case of the parallel papers, it was actually just creating that took a huge amount of time and it was very complicated because you had 11.5 million documents and within that there were 4.8 million leaked emails, there were 3 million database entries, there were 2.2 million PDFs, there were 1.1 million images and 320,000 text files. So just trying to make, even start to make all those different formats make sense um, was very, very difficult. And on top of that, actually, because it goes back for 40 years, some of these documents were handwritten. You know, it would just, it, so there was enormous, so first of all, they had to do an enormous amount of those, like optical character recognition, OCRing, which took a huge amount of time. John Doe, for various different reasons, was also leaking the data in tranches. So we do all the searches on one thing and, you know, sort of get stuck into that. And then the next uh, few weeks later, it would update. And so you'd have to do it all again, which was fine, but it just kind of, it was this constant, every time you thought you were getting to kind of making sense of it, it would update, it would get more complicated. Um, so the second key bit was Lincurious, which that essentially was, allowed you to visualise the data in searchable graphics, so you could, what you could, should have put a thing about that image. Um, but basically, this would allow you, you could put in company A and company B, and say, what's the quickest route between these two companies? And that was incredibly useful because it might go, oh, they're from the same address, or they've got these directors in common, or they've got, you know, that you suddenly be able to see these links between the two companies that you would never have been able to see otherwise. So that was a really useful way. And then you could start building up this graphic and sort of work out all these different companies have this in common, or they, you know, that this accountancy firm here is running them. So Linkurious was really great for sort of building up this sense of like trying to work out. How, who the shareholders were, who the directors were, and how, you know, which is great. Um, and then the third one was the Intelligence <coughs> Hub, which became known as the iHub very quickly. And that was actually probably the, well, no, Blacklight was the most important, but the iHub was incredibly useful because that essentially was a Facebook for journalists. So we all had our logins into it, and we could just really start putting in basically everything. So if what was really useful about it is that I could say, oh, I found this company here, but I, we really helped to get the company's house information for this, you know, German company's house information. And very quickly, one of the German reports, we have to go, like, in a way that I can understand company's house in the UK, but, like, trying to find the equivalent information in Germany would be almost, you know, it would take me days. Whereas for the German reporters, it would take them 10 minutes. So that speeded up things incredibly quickly. Or you could say, like, oh, I don't have any real understanding of what this bit here is. Does anybody else have a sense of it? And very quickly, somebody, you know, like a South African journalist might be like, yes, this person here, I remember they were involved in this crisis here or scandal there. So you had this real sort of like fast reaction um, and you could build on stuff really quickly. And actually the ICIJ managed to really create this sense of community and supporting each other, which I know sounds a bit ridiculous, but actually when you're sort of seven months into a project, being able to say like, Oh, you know, help, I don't understand this, was incredibly useful. And it wasn't so much for The Guardian in this way, because there were four of us working on this project full-time, so we didn't need it quite so much. But I think for reporters in countries where they were very isolated, or working on their own, or whatever, you know, just because they were a smaller media organisation, whatever it was, you would have ended up feeling very sort of 
on your own. And so actually sort of through this bit of tech, it actually really made us be able to interact with people, which was brilliant. Um, and it was just also, you could ask somebody, go like, could you go and look at this building, or could you do that? Or, you know, it was just incredibly quick on, on doing it. And also just supporting each other. So you put something in, and like literally 30 seconds later, Frederick Obermeyer would be like, oh, this is great. Or, you know, it, it was really sort of helpful in that way. Um, so those were the three main elements that we used. Um, and at Guardian, we also had a, our data team, who are brilliant. I mean, they're really, really fantastic. And they, uh, were, what they were doing was putting, in particular, they were putting in massive searches. So they'd set up a computer and like run it, run the Panama Paper data against the Sunday Times Rich list or like the US sanctions list. Or, and that would sit there and the computer would churn away for like three days at a time. And then it would spit out all these names. And then you could go off again and do that. So it was kind of, they were speeding up a measure, but it was also just kind of, but the thing I was saying about earlier is that this created an enormous number of false positives because you'd have, the system would generate all these new names, but it would be like, you'd, it'd be like Prince Charles, and you'd be like, oh, this is great, and it'd be actually Prince Charles Street, or Nelson Mandela, and it'd be Nelson Mandela's house, or like, no, Nelson Mandela house, or, so you'd endlessly think you'd got an amazing story, and it would actually be a complete dead end. And in fact, Donald Trump Tower, I think, also came up in it, so, anyway. Um, so, so that's basically how we started doing it. And this process, I mean, it went on for a really long time. And again, the false positives that you'd start, you'd work your way back through a whole series of companies. It would take a really long time. And you'd get to the absolute end of it, and it would just be this really boring person who'd put their money into Panama for whatever reason. And, you know, it just, you'd keep on thinking, like, oh, this would be fantastic. And you'd get to the end of it, and it would just be not. So <laughs> <laughs> that was it. So, um... And then the reporting on the Panama Papers, actually, unusually, because it was such a big project with so many reporters, we had to be very careful about how we actually did non-data-related investigations. So it was quite odd. And actually, so I don't know, last week, The Guardian and Panorama did a story about Rolls-Royce. Um, and Rolls-Royce was being investigated for three years by the SFO. Um, and we've been... We were working on that. So that was kind of quite old-fashioned journalism. That was kind of going around, knocking on the doors of all the you know, former Rolls-Royce executives, talking to everybody we could think of about you know, different stuff about Rolls-Royce. But actually, in that project, you started to see how the Panama Papers would continue to inform forever because that investigation set up, created new people to look at. And then you'd go back, and stuff that originally you looked at thinking wasn't interesting at all, suddenly you could go through it and be like, these people are really fascinating. So in particular, we had, um, there was a BAE executive who was linked to the Rolls-Royce stuff. And you could go through and you could see that his family had set up an, a Panamanian education foundation. And it looked like it was connected to uh, Banu Chowdhury, who is one of the Chowdhury family who are arms dealers in India, and also Lib Dem donors, because the Liberal Democrats cannot get a break on their donors. Um, and so that was just kind of how this is evolving. But, you know, now we can use this, we can go back to Panama Papers and see all this information that is going to continue to make more and more sense as time goes on. In the way that at first it was just impenetrable, now it will continue to be useful. And so, for example, I got shown this bank document over the course of this investigation, and I was pretty sure about the sourcing of this bank document, but 
The ICIJ has been able to publish information about the shareholders and directors of the panel, people in panel papers, but they have decided not to publish everything in it um, because there is a huge range of personal information within it. Um, so they've made that decision. So they've published that information, but there's still stuff that we can see. So with this bank document, I could look and see people referred to in the bank document that you couldn't know unless you looked at the Panama Papers, which was actually quite an effective way of verifying that information. Which is uh, so yeah, so it's going to continue to carry on, basically. So then after we've done the reporting, and as I say, it was very much kind of focused on the data side of it, on the reporting of the Panama Papers, then we had to go do the front-ups. Um, and the front-ups in themselves were quite extraordinary because what the ICIJ did was they created a very, very strict schedule, which, though it seemed strict, but it wasn't strict, it had to be strict, because you basically, we set a time that everybody would publish right the way around the world, um, you know, different time zones and everything else like that, and then we had to track back from there, and we had to go like, you know, we're going to have to go to these, particularly when you work with TV, because they take so, they do have to take so much longer than The Guardian, we can be much more flexible in that way. TV had to give people really long lead times. So you had this sort of slightly bizarre situation where when the reporters went to talk to the Icelandic Prime Minister, and he, you know, they went to do the interview, and he stormed out of the interview, sort of taking the microphone off, and you know, saying it was all an outrage. And then his wife put his statement up on Facebook, you know, saying, explaining kind of interest the company that they'd sort of owned. And this all kind of happened, and you know, clearly to everybody else around the world, what was going on in Iceland was kind of a bit like, yeah, you know. And, but we were all sitting there being like, you know, is anybody going to notice? Okay, right. <laughs> and it was just kind of very weird, this feeling of sort of every hoping that nobody would, in the international media would notice what was going on in Iceland. Um, and so Luke Harding had to go to the Kremlin and ask them lots of questions about um, Sergei Roldugin, um, which obviously the Kremlin didn't take very well either. So that was um, Vladimir Putin's, well, his his daughter's godfather. So it was a very close, long-running family relationship. Um, and so then you had the situation where like, Iceland were being furious here and the Kremlin were being furious there. And we were all sitting in the middle just really hoping that no one else would put together all these different things and work out they were all joined up. Um, but luckily they didn't. Um, so then we had to go... This is the other fun thing about journalism in this country. Um, these are some of the legal letters we got. Um, and... Poor David Pegg, who's a really brilliant reporter, was in charge of coordinating all the different legal letters, which went, I mean, it, in hindsight, all these different Carter Rupp shillings in particular must have made a fortune off the Panama Papers. <laughs> there we go. Um, because that's a really important part of what the ICIJ does, is creating a situation where you have reporters in lots and lots of different jurisdictions. And because in the UK, you can take out these injunctions, and that would could, you know, you could take them out of pre-publication in the UK, and that could have really ended us publishing. But if you have 100 different countries around the world, I don't think anybody's ever tried to get 100 injunctions around the world. The legal systems around the world do not have the capacity, you know, it's not necessarily what would happen. So just, just by working together, we can create the sort of ability to publish that we wouldn't necessarily have in the UK. So then we started publishing, and this is an ICIJ graphic of some of the slightly questionable characters that we published information about. Um, so, 
Yeah, so we first, the first person we published about was um, Sergei Roldugan, who for some reason is second on this. Um, and he, with that one, I mean, Luke, had to, Luke Harding had to tread very carefully on that one, um, just because he seemed to have billions of pounds, or billions of dollars, I think. I remember exactly which currency he had them in, um, which couldn't really be explained by the fact that he's a cellist and has made his money through playing in orchestras. And yeah, so anyway. Um, and then the next day we went, we wrote about Ian Cameron, who was the father of David Cameron. And that was actually quite, um, it was quite a complex story to do um, because, well, actually, it's been quite interesting in the last few days actually because Craig Oliver, who was the director of communications, uh, at Downing Street at the time has written about it and you know I think for David Cameron and his group around him it was a really sort of difficult time because to be fair to them they didn't know what the Guardian had access to and I think all they really knew was that David Cameron's father Ian Cameron had been doing something in Panama in the time when to be honest if you were doing stuff in Panama it wasn't it wasn't the cleanest jurisdiction by a very very long way so I think they literally just did not know what was going on. So there was a kind of like slightly chaotic period when they were trying to sort of guess what we had, but also simultaneously trying to work out what um, David Cameron's own finances were, which was quite, which were complex, and they were certainly kind of, so it went back and forth for a long time. So then we, so we wrote about that, and then we did like, wrote stories about Noah Sharif, uh, Petro, Petro Poroshenko in Ukraine, Ayad Alawi, the um, ex-interim ex Prime Minister of Iraq, Alan Mubarak, the son of Egypt's um, former president, and um, and I think actually, kind of just listing that names, uh, you know, I'm really aware that for the Guardian, for journalists sitting working the Guardian in London, the worst we get is those legal letters. But it was very different for some of the journalists working around the world, and I think kind of in particular the the Russian journalists who, you know, they just it's a completely different. What they're doing is different to what we're doing, and it is it was genuinely impressive. Um, so yeah, so then. I think people quite often ask what it's like that moment. So we're all in the office, and Kath Viner, who's the, who was then, you know, well, she's been doing the job for just under a year at that point. You know, so I think kind of it was that moment we were all sitting there, and you really don't want to be the person who screwed it up. You know, that you just, you're sitting there going, like, I hope this is going to be all right. And we never, I think none of us expected to actually get to this point of, of starting to publish simultaneously with everybody around the world. We were just, we were quite surprised to actually get to that point. But then you do have this moment when you're sitting there, and you, the button, it goes, and you look around the Guardian's offices, and you can suddenly see this one article, you know, the whole website changes up, you can see this article, everybody starts reading it, and in the Guardian's internal systems, we, we can see how many, how the story's been read, you know, where it's been read, how many people are reading it, what the social media reaction is, like this, and you can see very quickly that it was just going right the way around the world, incredibly, you know, when you have all those different media organisations all publishing stories, um, it, was, it was quite extraordinary. Um, so, so I think that moment before you start publishing, it's 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 really unnerving, but it's it's very exciting as well. It was really it was one of those great moments. Um, and uh, yeah, so basically, journalism is changing, and we we're seeing these incredibly rapid and actually really great um, changes going on at the moment. And it's quite actually today. So, but today in particular, I quite often when I talk to journalists. You know, who are, I mean, you're obviously kind of quite far into your careers, but sometimes talking to people who are sort of wanting to be journalists, there's a part of me that goes, don't be a journalist, because this industry is falling in on itself, and it's all, you know, it's, financially it's not doing very well, and it's very complicated, but actually today of all days, 
I think it's so important that journalists are carrying, you know, carrying on doing what they do and hold people to account, and it's, it's just so important. So yeah, so investigative journalism, you know, it takes time, it takes patience, it takes determination, and you know, it does, to a certain extent, sometimes take obsession. But with the Panama Papers, we did follow the money, and it did go absolutely all the way around the world. You know, we could see, I think someone's calculated that $2 trillion have passed through Mossack Fonseca's hands in the last, over the years. And $2 trillion is just an astonishing figure. And, you know, we can see that there's this rise in inequality in so many ways, and we are starting to see the consequences of that. And I think last, you know, Ed Miliband <coughs> last year lost the election, and so kind of has been forgotten about in this country. But there was one thing he had to say about the Panama Papers, which I think really stuck with me, which is that for 30 years since Reagan and Thatcher, the basic view has been, be nice to the super-rich, and their wealth will trickle down. And that is the big lesson of Panama for me. It doesn't trickle down. It gets stashed. So slightly depressingly, um, you know, it's been clear to me over the course of the Panama Papers investigation that it's just still a really, really long way to go in what we're doing.